making that time investment to build that list of rundown houses and market to them pays for itself, you know, 10 times over. Hello and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hello and welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. With me, excited to have David Lecco. David, how are you doing? Never been better. That's awesome, man. David is the uh, is the founder and CEO of Deal Machine, uh, which is the highest rated mobile app to help real estate investors find off-market deals. And David's also a real estate investor based in Austin, Texas, went uh using you know using his uh, app and driving for dollars and all, all that kind of stuff david went and built a uh, nice nice size portfolio very impressive portfolio with with almost nothing right two million dollar rental portfolio and uh and so we're going to kind of dive in dive into both of those you also host the deal machine real estate investing podcast so we'll also you know talk a little bit about that and and kind of why you're doing the podcast and who it's for. So with that said, David, give our listeners a bit more about your background and then we'll dive in. Gotcha. Well, it all started seven years ago when I had graduated college and I was working for a small company that I was excited about. I was excited because it was 20 employees and was working directly for the entrepreneur that started it. And he was branching off from consulting chapter organizations, how to grow and starting his first tech business, which was a software that was meant for recruitment that I actually created that he bought for $10,000 and then hired me to run and build this business from scratch with me. The problem was I was working 80 hours a week and I didn't know that was a problem until about two years when I was at my best friend's wedding and I was thinking, oh, thank God, I didn't get called to fix a bug on this software. And I had been working really long hours because I was the tech support. I was the trainer. I was the software developer doing everything in this company, which taught me a lot. But eventually I did get called during that wedding. And when I came back, my best friend's wife was like, you have to tell them to hire someone else. You can't be sacrificing your life in important moments like this. And I just disagreed with her at the time. I was like, you don't understand. All I want is to create wealth. And this is my pillar is just focusing 80 hours a week on learning as much as I can from this guy. But I thought more about it and I felt that I had learned enough and it was time if I was working this hard, it ought to be for myself. And this entrepreneur, I noticed he worked a lot less than I did to be fair. And I asked him, I noticed he had rental properties. And I said, why do you have these rental properties? Because I'm really sacrificing a lot myself. I've been saving 50% of my salary and putting it into my Roth IRA and been doing that for most of my 20s. So I didn't have any you know, free time, so it didn't matter. Um, I, I was living with three roommates, it didn't matter because I was working all the time. And I had this beat up Honda Accord that needed a new paint job, but it didn't matter because I was just working all the time. And he said that the rental properties, if you buy them right and you manage them well, they will always give you cash flow. And it may or may not appreciate. And if that happens, then that's just icing on the cake. And I liked the sound of that because I wanted to retire when I was 40. And this guy had the same goal. And I could break down rental properties a whole lot easier than thinking, 
well, what's like the critical value of my Roth IRA that would allow me to retire when I was 40? You know, it, it just, it didn't compute as easily there as it did rental properties that gave cash flow. So I went looking for a deal, but I felt pretty discouraged when he said, uh, I went back to him. I was like, hey, every house I'm looking at on Zillow, you know, I let's say it's listed for $200,000 and, uh, you know, the mortgage payment on that thing is, is going to be, you know, $1,000. Um, and I, I don't think I can rent it for more than a thousand dollars. So I don't know. I don't want to buy this deal. It doesn't seem like it would make sense. And he said, well, I bought these in 2009. So I don't know if you can find as good a deals now. And that, that made me feel really discouraged. You know, I don't think he intended that to be the case. I found luckily that there was a meetup in town for real estate investors. So I went to that and I found a whole bunch of people there that were doing deals in 2016, which is when this was. And they said, in order to find a deal that cash flow, I need to go look for rundown houses, drive around, find some that look rundown and write the owner a letter asking if they want to sell their house. So I spent the next two months feeling ecstatic, like doing that and having a ton of fun, just exploring these neighborhoods in Indianapolis that I didn't really know existed. Until one day I drove around, I saw a house that was getting worked on and I knew that house was on my list. So I flipped, flipped, flipped and saw the address right there. And I just ran home. I was like, how are they fixing it up now after all these years of it run down? But I could tell when I looked up on the county website, like somebody just bought it and my heart sank. I was like, dude, I, I'm so stupid. I've just spent all this time writing down, but I never reached out. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't really have the guts to reach out or knock on the door yep. or, or send a letter. And so, you know, most people would probably stay mad at themselves, but I'm pretty solution oriented. And that weekend I, I had a little software development skill. So I made this widget on my phone that would let me pin the house, look up who owns it from the County and then send a piece of mail to the owner from my phone. And it, it, I just used that myself, just a tool for me um, to kind of take my lack of follow through off the table as like being an issue. And, and that worked out really well. And it helped me get my very first deal which I want to tell you about, but just to complete the circle, since you did mention, I, I have this software platform. Seven months later, I showed the person that ran this meetup what I had created, what I was using to find a deal, taking their advice to go look for rundown houses. And she said, how do I try that? I, I'll spend $1,000 to try any new marketing method. I, I come here to buy 30 homes per month. I just, I couldn't believe that. I was like, 30 homes is unfathomable. Plus, I was like, I'm not even trying to sell this. It's not even available for you to buy. And you're saying you'll spend a thousand dollars. So I quickly like came up with a name um, at, at that software company. If I close a, a deal to sell this software, they would call me a deal machine. So I was like, this is a good name. I like being called that. So I'm going to call this <laughs> app this. It needed a name to put, throw it up in the app store so she could actually download she it, could, right? She could use it. Yeah. Yep. And so it was a free app, but to send mail, I mean, that's a hard cost. So I would charge... Yeah. $2 per piece of mail. Yes, that's expensive, but this is for like a niche list. And I thought it was valid for me to get some payment, some margin sure, for providing this app. So she bought um, $750 worth of mail and she negotiated down the price. And so that's, I had to set up a payment processor and everything. Um, and I, I needed a logo too, to put it on the app store. So I went to 99designs, <laughs> spent a hundred bucks and got this logo and had a name. And so, and, and, and after that point, she, you know, paid the money to actually get the, um, the mail loaded on her account, 
people started trickle in because they put this keyword called driving for dollars in the iTunes store. Hmm. And when somebody would download the app, maybe like five or eight people per day, not a lot, but they were people that also were trying to drive for dollars. And so I would, it was an intuitive app. It didn't look good. So I would call them eventually my whole day while I'm still working my nine to five job is mostly full of trying to rush through these 30 minute conversations, explaining how to use this app. So uh, I ended up inviting my best friend who is a better software developer than me. He could make stuff look so good. If he'd be my business partner, I was like, I think, I think people want this. I think this could be a business, even though that is not at all what I was trying to do. And then um, we, you know, formed the business in May of 2017 as 50, 50 business partners. And then we bootstrapped it all the way to uh, where we are today. Uh, so I think all in total, um, you know, we changed the pricing model a little bit, which helped accelerate our growth. Um, and, and it's been a very successful business for us. And I, I checked, we've, we've done about 60 million in revenue since 2017 when we like formed the business hmm. on the deal machine side. Wow. Is it still a free app? No. So the first year we did $20,000, people really had trouble paying $2 per postcard. Sure. So we made it yeah. $50 per month and made the postcards a dollar. And we continued to lower the cost of mail as low as possible. So today I think you can get it postage included for 45 cents if you're um, you know, paying like a hundred dollars a month and you commit to buying like a bulk package. So people, we actually succeeded a lot more when we 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 changed the pricing structure in a way that people felt more comfortable paying. Yeah. Yeah. They're willing to pay that monthly subscription, but they're like, hey, two bucks, you know, you're gouging me. Correct. Yeah. You know? That's yeah, exactly that, that right. Sounds, huh? Interesting. And and so, so yeah, you you hired a software designer, or not hired? It was he a was best friend partner. of mine who I'm lucky yeah. to have that yeah. I knew was a great software developer who was a unicorn that could make things look good and functional. So he's my 50% business partner, and we worked for a total of two years each, basically with no pay, because when we took twenty thousand dollars revenue that first year. Most of that was actually just buying mail and it's definitely not enough to live off of. So yeah, yeah. He, he had a little bit of consulting on the side that he did. Plus he was married. So his wife had income. And then I was living off savings. Cause remember I told you, I saved 50% of my salary for like many years in my twenties. So it, it, I didn't make a lot, but it was enough to sustain me for like a year and a half to two years of working with no pay. I just started spending out of my retirement account. Were you buying rental properties at that time while you were developing or did you put that on hold then? Yeah, the whole thing was just to make me successful finding my own rental property. So I ended up buying nine properties before I halted buying rentals to focus on the software because the software trajectory was like 20,000, then 1.3 million, then uh, I think 6 million was the next year. So mm -hmm. it was really felt like a hockey stick yep. moment and I needed to focus on that software, bigger opportunity. Now, looking back, I held those properties, those nine properties for about five years. They netted 72,000 each year. Plus they appreciated almost a million dollars. So looking back, I was like, oh, I should have kept buying properties. So now I'm buying again, I've bought five this year. But software aside, um, I actually you know, bought the first property and uh, for $4,000, believe it or not. You bought a property for $4,000? I did. That's how I started my rental portfolio. Wow. 
Wow. $4,782 specifically. And it was this 600 square foot house where the average house that was in perfect condition was like maybe $150,000, but they were all 1200 square feet. This house was like no other house in the, on the block. And I, I took that as a sign that like, this is, this should be my first deal because it, it just felt special. Now I know that just makes things complicated, but at the time I was like, this is special. <laughs> um, so starting off, I- Did that house cash flow? Yeah, I had to. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It did. So it almost met the 2% rule at the time. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. So, but I, yeah. So the, I had a few learning moments along the way. I was going to actually, um, first of all, I, I calculated the comps. I was like 150 perfect condition, but this is half the, half the price, half the square footage of, of the rest of the home. Yeah. So there's no other 600 square foot house. So I just cut it in half and I was like 75 K perfect condition. I bought it thinking it would cost me 50 K to renovate. And, uh, I was going to offer 10,000 for the house, but I remembered, and it, somebody had told me when you're doing your first deal, unless you feel offended by how low the offer is, you're probably not offering low enough because unexpected costs come up. Yep. So before I sent him that offer, which, which by the way, he called me back from a postcard. He said, I want an offer on my house. I had no idea what to say. So I asked if I could meet him at six <laughs> and he said, yes. And when I met him again, I had no idea what to say. And I said, can I take some photos and then we can chat while we're walking around and then I'll calculate what I can offer you. And he said, sure. And I, I still didn't know how much to offer him. So I said, I'll get back with you in 24 hours. So I sat there on Zillow, looking at comps, figuring out what I was going to offer. It was going to be 10,000, but that quote came in my head and I thought, let me recalculate. And I wound up offering $4,782, which was some mathematical way I, I, I decided to subtract values and stuff, you know? And so <clears throat> he accepted it. I bought it. He thought I was going to demolish the house, but I did the whole thing on credit cards. I, I Signed up for four credit cards the very next day. Uh, I tried to do it all at the same time. That way it tricked the credit bureaus, I thought. <laughs> I don't know if that's actually true, but sure. I wanted the, the <laughs> most credit I could, right? So I just applied for all these four at the same time. I ended up getting about $50,000 of credit. And I found a contractor that would take credit card. And there was a delay in work. Um, so I ended up having to get a new contractor, getting a refund from the first one who said, this just costs more than I thought to fix it up like you need it. And I found this guy who bails people out. And I was like, I don't know what that means. But looking back, it probably means he uses like, you know, illegal labor or something that he can do. He can do it super cheap. But he bailed me out. And then I rented it for uh, a thousand at the time. So I was all in uh, about 70,000, right? So not a great deal. Uh, I didn't create a lot of equity in that in that deal, but it rented for a thousand. And um, you know, eventually rents went up, so it's like twelve hundred now. Um, so I would say it's been a great deal, and it was certainly a great learning experience. But I did more of those uh, deals where I I created on the next one twenty five percent equity, so I could recycle the money I had in the property right. by getting a cash out refinance and. 75% uh, loan to value. And then I had all that money in my pocket and a cash flowing rental with financing in place. Um, and I could just keep doing deal after deal 
like that. And so that's how I got up to nine without a ton of cash. Um, and, and since I had just quit my job though, the first few I had a job, then I quit my job. Um, I actually found a friend that would, he had a big W2 job in Chicago and he wanted to invest in real estate, but you can't invest in real estate in Chicago and cash flow like you can in Indianapolis. So he saw what I did from my Facebook posts and he put the mortgage in his name and provided all of the money, let me be 50% owner. So there was a period there where I, I couldn't get houses financed on my own once I quit my job. And so he, uh, we, I have four houses with him where we each own it 50% each, but I have zero money in the whole house. Yep. And so those, those have been great. Like one, not only do they cash flow, but like one we bought for like 104,000, it's worth 240 now and it's still cash flow. So it's been, mm -hmm. uh, it was, it's been a great move for me and one that I would recommend if you, for some reason, you know, can't get the financing yourself. Yeah. I actually did the exact same thing with two friends because I ran out of being able to get mortgages in my name. And so I brought them in. They did the exact same thing, put the mortgage down, put the down payment down. And, uh, and then we split the profits, uh, 50, 50. So it was like right. the exact same thing. And it worked beautifully. And, and we're actually selling one of those houses, uh, next week. And he put, I think right now, if I recall properly, cause we, we bought the house, his, you know, original was like 300 K or sorry, 30 uh, K that he put in and then we refinance. So he's got nothing into this house right now. And he's going to end up um, with a very nice profit. So and it did oh, good. Yeah. It, it actually, um, I used to think the power was the person with the money, but the power is the person who knows how to find the deals. Yeah. Cause you could do that again and again and again with no limit. As long yep. as you know how to find the deals. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I, I, if you have, well, you have to figure out what you have, right? Where where is your power? Because th that's a great point. If you're if you can find the deals, you don't necessarily need the money, right? You need to find people that have the money. But if you have the deals, you can get those deals done. Now, I wouldn't go suggest finding a bunch of deals, getting them under contract, and then hoping and praying that you can find the money. But still, if you've got the money. You need to find somebody like you that wanted to go find the deals, right? And right. so you just need to figure out what you have and then figure out who else has what you don't have. Right. Yeah. Um, so do you own, do you still own that 600 square foot house and that, yes. that first one? You still yes, own I do. that? I yes, I do. That. My goal great. is to never sell. Really? I have sold a couple properties that just weren't my bread and butter rental properties. And typically they were properties that were more valuable than my average, which is like 200K in perfect condition, mm. three bedroom, two bath house, 1500 square feet. Uh, it, it, if, they, if they were like more expensive than that, I ended up having like longer vacancies. And so I, that's when I realized like doing houses that are very similar to each other, not only makes the rehab process really easy, because you know what it costs to fix everything in that type of house, uh, but it also will have different factors in like who your renter clientele is. So approving people yeah. will be different. So I try to keep everything the same type of house. So that way I can keep my life easy managing yeah. these properties and keeping the business driving as much revenue as possible.
Yeah, I always suggest to people, look, whatever you do, whether it's an apartment building, whether it's single family homes, do whatever it is, when you renovate, keep all your renovations the exact same. Like try to try to just these things need to be as cookie cutter as possible. So you got the maintenance guy and he's missing something. It, he he knows exactly what to get because it's in all the other properties that you got. It's in all the other units you got. And his the maintenance guy's just like, yeah, like right, I gotta go get that faucet. Gotta go. I know exactly the paint color of everything that that just keeps it simple. You said Correct. something earlier that I thought was very powerful and a lot of people don't think this way. And, and I think it gets a lot of people in trouble is you said, and I really like how you said it. You said cash. And I think this was advice somebody gave you. You find an asset that is cash flowing. And if it appreciates, that's just the icing on the cake. So many people focus on the value of the asset and whether they can create value or if the market will create value and they don't focus on the cash flow. They're just buying the real estate thinking that that's what's going to make them rich. And then they forget that the cash flow is really the meat and potatoes and the appreciation, like you said, that's just the dessert. That's the icing on the cake. Like if you get it, you get it. But we don't, we need cash flow. Correct. And, and is that still how you look at every deal or will you buy deals that have that big appreciation bump? No, the deals that have the big appreciation bump would be possibly sucking money from my main W2 active income source, which puts me in a scary position. Yeah. And I never want these properties to be a burden or a suck on my finances. And I always want them to generate finances so that I can hold them for eternity and not have to scramble if I'm losing money on this thing and something goes sideways or upside down. You know, I, I'm investing to make my life relaxing, not have to deal with these problems of cash flow. Yeah. Yeah. I know people do though, right? People invest in San Francisco. And those things never cash flow. It's just not uh, my choice. Not what I wanted to do with my investing. And and like you said, that's a that's a scary proposition to say that I'm going to buy this property and I know the value is going to go up. So it doesn't matter that it loses money. But the problem is like, well, what happens if what hap what's happening in San Francisco right now today is actually happens and you got caught buying it at a higher price. And who knows, San Francisco will probably rebound and you'll probably be okay. But man, maybe. What if you lose your job in the interim and you have to sell it? Now you bought it for you know $2 million and now it's worth 1.3 and you have, yeah. you're forced to sell. You go through a divorce, you, somebody dies, whatever. You, there's so many things. You get a medical issue and you have to sell and now you lose a half a million dollars. Yeah, you could do that if your net worth is a hundred million dollars. Like sure, yeah. you could buy a $4 sure. million dollar place in San Francisco that doesn't cash flow because you can sustain the losses in the meantime. Mm -hmm. But that's not me. I did not start with anything like that. Gotcha. Well, and I think that's where most people are at as well. So um, sound advice and, and I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, what else do you want to cover, whether it's with the the deal um, machine, 
or the 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 rental business? What what do you think is important for our listeners to know? Correct. Yes. You know, the way I was able to recycle money was because I found such great deals. And so I would say what I've realized is you if you find great deals, um, you can keep recycling your money and build that portfolio without running out of money after buying three or four rentals, right? And so I wanted to break down a couple numbers if you're going to do that. So if you're going to look yourself in a Midwest market for rundown houses and then actively market to them, I would say you need to find at least 500 rundown houses and, and market to them at least six times each. And if you're in a more expensive market, like say, you know, outside of Seattle, the Pacific Northwest, where the home prices are higher, 1500 deals, 1500 rundown houses and send mail at least three times each. Wow. That's, those are numbers that I've seen anecdotally from helping people close 10,000 deals in all 50 states using Deal Machine. And so that's so important because when you start this process, if you don't know what the benchmark is, you may give up too soon before you give yourself the chance of having success. But making that time investment to build that list of rundown houses and market to them pays for itself, you know, 10 times over typically when you end up with a house with, you know, 25% extra equity that was such a great deal. You know, it's, it, it's, I hear this theme over and over in my podcast and it's always got a different twist to it. Right. But it's the same type of thing. It's consistent and persistent action. Like you just got to keep doing it. And if you want good deals, it's not that you market to the one good deal one time and hope and pray that it comes. It's that you're consistent and persistent and you keep on marketing and you're marketing not to one, but to 500 to 1500. And you're doing it not once, but you're doing it three, four, five, six, seven times until they start to click. And that's where the magic happens. It doesn't happen just that one time and we just give up when it doesn't work. Totally agree. I, I would say it took me seven months because I was kind of slow with adding properties. It took two months to even add 40 properties. But if yeah. I knew the benchmark needed to be like 500 properties, I would have like hustled to get that done a lot faster. So just, you know, having that benchmark helps. Um, and I would say I just published uh, how to get your deal in seven days. Um, it's episode 65 of the deal machine podcast. So that will give you the framework to get that deal faster if you're interested in being active like that. Uh, if you if you don't want to be actively driving around, uh, you could also hire a driver uh, to go you know drive and look for those rundown houses for you as well. That's interesting. So you're hiring somebody and you're just telling them your criteria and they go drive around, they create a list and, and you're paying them for that. Correct. Yep. Huh. Interesting. I never thought about uh, doing that. It's funny, you know, I think about how many times you drive by a building and you, know, you talk about that one building early on and, and you, you saw somebody working on it. I think about how many times I've driven by properties. I just did the other day and I don't buy single families and flip them anymore, but um, I lived in the neighborhood, literally lived on the block and this house down the road, I should have bought you know, seven, eight years ago when I was doing this, I should have bought it. And randomly, one of my wife's friends is like, Hey, I've got this house, my whatever grandpa owned and, and passed away. Do you know anybody that would like to buy it? And, and it's just like, what? Like, this is crazy. It's literally 
five houses from where we lived. Um, so how many times you buy, you, you know, you drive by these buildings, you just don't write it down, even though you should have, you should have done it. And, and there's so many instances I can think of that I just didn't pull the trigger on marketing to that person. Correct. And it we ended up being a great deal. Like somebody else got it. Yes. So when I was first starting out, maybe the second or third time I went to that meetup, there was a guy there and he was looking for rundown properties. He told me he would pay me $500 if I sent him a rundown property that he ended up closing on. And I was jacked. That's ex exciting, right? Because it takes the fear of doing a deal myself. Yeah. It still allows me to be a part of it and see how it's done. So that very next day I saw one and I texted him and he said, thank you so much. And then I never heard back from him. Surprise, right? I have no idea if he followed up with them or not. And so I never sent him another property because it just seemed like this is going into a black hole, you know? And so for that reason, uh, the Deal Machine app has a place for a driver to be adding properties and they can see that you're marketing to those properties. And it gives them confidence that you are in mm. fact, taking action on the leads they're sending you, which gives more motivation for them to keep adding them. Yeah. So that was that was a huge factor in in why I designed that part of the app that way. That's cool, David. What what's a mistake that you've made along your journey, um, either with the the deal machine or just just with the rentals? Uh, what's a mistake that you've made, and uh, how can you pass down some wisdom to our listeners? Of course. So um, a huge mistake that I made was actually working with contractors. I paid him for more work than he had done. I gave him a 50% deposit on this $50,000 renovation project. And when progress stopped, he had not done half of the work yet. You know, He had only done about a fourth of the work. So he had this money that yeah. I was owed and no progress happened. And I was kind of stuck because I'm like, I'm not going to hire another contractor when this guy's got my money. And I had to finally sit down with them and get him to agree to refund me some of that. Now it could have gone the wrong yeah, way. You're lucky, quite frankly. Yeah, it could have gone the wrong way. And so I, I realized though, that contractors and real estate investors have totally opposite incentives. They get these big down payments when they start new, new jobs. And so it's they make more money by starting as many jobs as possible, not by finishing jobs. And so I've created um, an incentive I'll say, how long, when, when you're bidding on my project, how long do you think it would take? Give me an ETA. And then I'll say, okay, let's take that and add two weeks to it. That way I'm the nice guy. And I'll say, if you finish it by this date, then I'll give you an extra $2,000 and you'll get that by completing it at this date. And so I, I try to create that incentive. So we are aligned rather than working against each other uh, because we're always going to operate in our own self-interest. So I try to make it worthwhile for them to do more and more of my projects faster. Yeah. And one thing I would suggest to people is don't pay that big down payment, like a 50% down payment. They don't need right. that for any reason. If it's Correct. for materials, then say, I'll buy the materials myself. Correct. You provide the labor. And Correct. so then you don't have to pay and just have milestones, checklist milestones. And if they're nervous about the money, go put the money in an escrow account and they can see that the money's there and it's just for them. Uh, by the way, your state might even require that. Um, but, you know, just be smart about it because, yeah, you're right. that you, Your interests aren't aligned. <laughs> Contractors, they have that incentive to keep on starting jobs, but not necessarily finishing. Great, great advice. Um, got a couple last questions before we wrap. Um, 
what's a what's a favorite book that you can recommend to our listeners? Yeah, my favorite book that I read in the last year, uh, I read 15 books. I used to not read at all, but mm-hmm. got really turned on to it and have really enjoyed uh, everything I've read was, uh, I would say, humor seriously. And I used to be this serious person that's focused on work all the time. But as I've expanded my team, I noticed that if I say jokes, this whole book does studies. They're like, if you say jokes, even if they're not funny, as long as they're not inappropriate, people will like you more and they will feel more Mm. relaxed at their job. And our employee NPS has gone to 90. So if you don't know what that is, it's the question that you get. It's a survey and it says on a scale of zero to 10, how likely would you recommend this product? Or in my case, how likely would you recommend a friend work at this company? And companies like Apple, Coca-Cola, you know, their scores are in like the 50s, 60s. And for us to be at 90 is like unheard of. And I, I don't even know that it could last that long, but it's a great place to be. It means for me as a business owner, the people that I work with, they enjoy working here. They're, they're not searching for other jobs. They yeah. are going to stay. I'm not going to have to replace them and retrain somebody, which has a lot of hidden costs and a lot of drag on productivity. So I'm super thankful for that. And I've got to attribute that book uh, because it's just made me lighten up and tell more jokes intentionally. And even if I'm not funny, as long as it's not inappropriate, then I know it's having a positive effect based on the studies in that book. So I like that a lot. Yeah. See, that's the best part about it is there's no pressure. It doesn't have to be funny. So just go ahead and tell your jokes that nobody laughs at. It's fine. It just, it still makes you more likable. So I, I'm really happy that they don't have to be funny. That really hits home for me. So uh, I laugh at my own jokes. Usually my, my wife and kids, maybe they don't laugh, but I laugh at my own jokes. So that's all that matters to me. Um, best joke tellers always do. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, love it. So what's a uh, last question I ask is, is what are your three pillars of wealth creation? So what are your three pillars of wealth? Yes, I would say stay focused and start early. And for me, it's always been in real estate. So um, when I've talked about being focused I have one business partner who's crucial to my main source of income, Deal Machine. I've been asked to start other businesses or tempted to try new businesses that might be interesting, but it wouldn't be fair to him if I was splitting my time Mm -hmm. and then he might split his time. And then soon enough, our main business is no longer getting the attention it needs. So staying focused on driving that active income, I think has been crucial to the success that I've had. And then my original thing for getting into Deal Machine was real estate investing. So I already had that going. And I would say I put like 90% of my investments into real estate. And I I really don't mess with a lot of stocks or Bitcoin or anything like that because I don't know. The conventional advice is like diversify, but that's honestly for people who don't want to pay attention to their investments. Of course, yeah. the easy thing to do is diversify. It's like lazy, you know? And, and for most people, that's fine. But for me, like I've spent nothing but the last seven years focusing on understanding real estate. <clears throat> I'm not saying I'm invincible, but wouldn't you think you have the best chance to make the best returns or to see a problem coming that other people may not see or pay attention to if that's all you focus on? So um, those are the three pillars of building wealth that I have followed. 
And I've really enjoyed the security uh, that that's brought me. And my uh, my rentals, um, the appreciation and the cash flow together have gotten about <clears throat> 22% cash on cash return. That's great. Which I would have not known really how to calculate if it weren't for the software platform, Stessa. Uh, it's free. You just plug all your rentals in there and connect it to your bank accounts and it can calculate that for you. And so that's how I keep an eye on that. And hmm. it's not only uh, been you know lucrative, but it's it's been fun too. So I just like real estate. Yep. Yep. It's funny. I, I would say the vast majority of people that I know that do real estate, like they, 90% of their portfolio is in real estate. I mean, I know mine is probably 95% or more. Um, it just, but I, there's a quote from uh, Gary Keller and it's in his book, The One Thing. And he's talking about how everybody says to diversify, don't put all your eggs in one basket. He says, no. I say put all your eggs in one basket and protect that basket really well. Mm-hmm. And like I heard that, I was like, yes, hundred percent. Because as yeah. just as you said, David, you said, look, you feel way more comfortable and confident in your investments because that's what you focus on. That's what you're an expert in. You know, you're looking at it on a daily basis and you know how to protect those investments better than if you just go buy Bitcoin and a bunch of stocks and stuff you don't care about and stuff you just don't know about. Correct. Totally agree. Love it. Well, look, David, really appreciate it. Um, Appreciate the time and and the insight. A lot of, a lot of good stuff here. Um, for those who want to reach out to you, for, for those who want to connect, how can they get in touch with you? Yeah. If you want to actually find a really great deal that allows you to recycle your money, check out episode 65 of the Deal Machine podcast, how to get your deal in seven days. And also I'm on Instagram at DLECO. Love it. Love it. Again, really appreciate it. And uh, you have a fantastic rest of the day. Thank you, Todd. I appreciate it. Hello, and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it.